Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. ...to the book of Mark. Yeah, I believe the passage this morning is found on page 495 of the paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. If you didn't bring a Bible, um, paperback Bible is accessible, page 4. 95. Mark chapter 12, we're looking at verses 18 to 27 this morning. Uh, something that you hear people say very often, um, I've said it before and you've heard it, it's kind of a cliche that when you are in social company with others, having dinner with somebody, you're out with other people, there are two things you don't talk about, right? Politics and religion, two things you don't talk about. Uh, I find that very interesting because you might remember the last sermon in Mark two Sundays ago was about politics, <laughs> give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's from Mark 12, and today's passage has to do with, well, no surprise, religion. So perhaps we're invited to talk about politics and religion more than we think, but in any case, we know why people suggest that you shouldn't talk about politics and religion, and the reason why is because it very frequently ends in an argument. A dispute. Sometimes relationships are damaged, and with regard to religion, very often the argument will involve some discussion about what the Bible teaches. And very often, any discussion about what the Bible teaches will often end in some kind of an exchange like this. You have your interpretation, and I have mine, and so let's just leave it at that. And you go your separate ways. You have your interpretation, I have mine, let's leave it at that. But can we really leave it at that? When we read the Bible, is it really just open to our individual interpretation? Is it possible that in someone's interpretation of the Bible that that person can be actually wrong? And does it matter? That's what we're going to be talking about here this morning. Our topic for today is Jesus and the Bible. And uh, the good news, friends, is that the God we come here to worship wants to be known by you. He is not hiding from you. He is not fleeing from you. Even though there are certain things, as Pastor Brian was saying a moment ago, about God's sovereignty and other issues that are mysterious, God actually is not shrouded in impenetrable mystery. He has actually revealed Himself to us and wants to be known. A guy named Mark Thompson says it like this, if communication is generally possible between human beings, as common experience confirms, what kind of arrogance would suggest that this is beyond God? The living God is an effective communicator. I mean, think about the arrogance of saying that we can communicate to one another clearly, but somehow the Holy Almighty God is incapable of communicating to us. Well, this is what we're going to consider here in Mark 12, 18 through 27. If you're able to stand, you can please do that at this time. Here we have Jesus entering into yet another dispute as He is challenged once again, and we'll pick up here on verse 18. Mark 12, 18, and Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, 
And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Holy Spirit, would you please open our hearts and our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. You can be seated. Amen. Um, So, at one level, this passage certainly is about the resurrection, and so we will talk about that, but I think more specifically, this passage is about what the Bible says about the resurrection. And, uh, of course, there are many different uh, interpretations of of the Scripture. We, We know that from experience. There are certainly portions of the Bible that are difficult to understand, but let's consider this question about whether the Bible is just simply open to our interpretation by considering three things, and the first is this. Ignorance of the Bible leads to error. Ignorance of the Bible leads to error. So, starting here at verse 18, we're going to run through this in some detail. It says, Sadducees came to Him. Sadducees came to Jesus. We've heard a little bit about this group called the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is like a leading authoritative Jewish council of the day. Sanhedrin was made of Sadducees and Pharisees. So you've heard a lot about the Pharisees through the book of Mark. Here we have the Sadducees now coming to confront Jesus. Pharisees and Sadducees have one thing in common. They both don't like Jesus, but actually they have very little in common beside that. There's a lot of disagreement theologically between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. For instance, the Pharisees believed, uh, had a very high view of God's sovereignty, as we've already talked about a little bit here this morning. The Sadducees minimized God's sovereignty in favor of human free will. Pharisees believed in angels and demons. Sadducees did not. Some would say the Pharisees were a little more conservative, the Sadducees a little more progressive, although those are kind of terms used today that might not fit so well then. Um, But one of the major distinctions in their belief system is that the Pharisees believed in a resurrection from the dead, and the Sadducees did not. And so you see that very clearly in verse 18. Sadducees came to him who say, there is no resurrection. So the Sadducees thought that when a person dies, uh, the soul and body just perish. There really is no afterlife whatsoever. Everything just ends at that point point. That was the view of the Sadducees. And so, they come to Jesus 
in verse 19 with a question, and it's another trap question with this conviction in mind about there being no resurrection. So look at verse 19, and you'll notice that they refer to the Bible. Teacher, Moses wrote for us, referring to the Scriptures, referring to the Bible, and here they are referring to Deuteronomy 25. Now, here's another difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees had a a larger canon of Scripture in mind. They believed in the Torah and uh, the wisdom writings and the prophets, so they uh, accepted um, a Bible that was something close to what we would regard as the fullness of Old Testament Scripture. But the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, only the Torah, only the first five books. So, That explains in part why they are referring here to Deuteronomy 25. And here's the passage that they have in mind, Deuteronomy 25, 5. So when they say Moses wrote, they're referring to this passage. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So the intention of this passage is to preserve the family line for a woman whose husband dies. It's also to provide for that woman financially because it would have been devastating in that very patriarchal age for a woman to have a deceased husband. So this is a grace and mercy to a widow is why this is set up. And so the Sadducees look at this verse of Scripture And from that, they kind of invent this very fantastic hypothetical situation and present it to Jesus as a way of trying to trap Him. And so, uh, that's what they describe here in verses um, 19, 20, and going forward. And so, what what they say is this. They say, okay, Jesus, you know, let's say um, uh, there's a woman and her husband dies, and they have no children, but in accordance with Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, the brother comes along and marries this widow, but that man also dies without having any offspring. And so, this just kind of goes on. Verse 20 tells us that there are actually seven brothers total. The first takes the wife, and when he dies, they leave no offspring. Verse 21, the second comes along, marries the woman. He dies before there is no offspring. The third, likewise, this goes on and on through all seven brothers. And then verse 22, last of all, the woman dies, and so there is no offspring. And so, in verse 23, the Sadducees present the question. Here's the trap. They think they're very clever here. They're going to trap Jesus presented to him a question he can't answer. And they say, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be, Jesus? For the seven had her as his wife. Yeah, what are you going to say about that? That's what they're saying, presenting this problem to Jesus. Their whole intent here is to make the resurrection look silly. It's to portray this idea of life beyond the grave, a resurrection, as something absurd, to make the point that there is no resurrection from the dead. So, Jesus responds in verse 23, and look what He says, excuse me, verse 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you 
are wrong. So notice that Jesus doesn't say, well, Sadducees, you have your interpretation and I have mine. So let's just leave it at that. No, there is a very clear, blunt statement. You are wrong. You're wrong. This is not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of interpretation. You're wrong, and the reason, particularly, that you are wrong is that you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. You have a truncated understanding of what God can do, but for our purposes here today, more specifically, you don't know the Scriptures. You don't know your Bible. That's your problem, Sadducees. This word for wrong, it might be error in your translation. It means to be led astray or to wander off track. Here's something that you'll notice in the Gospels. Whenever there is confusion or debate about what the Bible means, when you see how Jesus approaches it, He never lays blame on the Word of God itself. He never blames the Scriptures. He always points the finger at the readers of the Scriptures. Jesus never says something like, in an exchange like this, like, well, yeah, it is a really ancient text, and so I guess we can never really understand the way something was written so many years ago in this different culture and different historical situation. How, how, can, how can we know? Jesus does not say, um, well, yeah, this text has probably been corrupted and edited and massaged over the centuries, and so, yeah, I guess we can't know. Nor does he say, well, these things are so mysterious, and so uh, I guess we can't know. And nor does he say, all that really matters is how you feel about God in your heart, and that you do the best you can, and that you have a sincere approach to whatever it is you think about God. He doesn't say any of those kinds of things that you hear people say about all the time today. What he says is you're wrong, and the reason you're wrong is you don't know your Bible. Friends, this is to account and explain for most of the trouble that we get into when we have differences of interpretation in the Scriptures. We don't know our Bibles. Do you know your Bible? If you're a Christian, do you know your Bible? Can you give me a broad overview of the biblical story? What steps do you take to make sure you are not ignorant? of the Bible. I heard about what happened on Jeopardy earlier this week. I'm not really a fan of the show Jeopardy, but um, I heard that there was a question asked to three contestants on Jeopardy, and so they presented to them a Bible verse, these three contestants. And it said uh, on the screen, um, okay, you know, fill in the blank, our Father who art in heaven, what be thy name? Our Father who art in heaven, blank, be thy name. What's, what's the word to fill in the blank? And the three contestants just stood there, dumbfounded, <laughs> had, had, had no idea. You know, it'd be one thing if they maybe gave a crack at it and said, you know, wonderful be thy name, or, um, you know, righteous be thy name. They, they didn't even know where to begin. They had no answer whatsoever. Hallowed be thy name. Holy be thy name. They, they had no clue. And we live in a culture now that is getting increasingly illiterate in terms of our understanding of the Scriptures, and uh, it's many people who complain the most about 
the Bible being hard to understand, who never read it. <laughs> Friends, don't let that be said about you. You're Christians. Know your Bible. There is no excuse living in 2023 for a Christian not to know his or her Bible. Are you reading your Bible? Are you studying your Bible? Are you talking about your Bible? Are you reflecting on your Bible? Do you talk with your friends about the Bible? Do you listen to sermons about the Bible? Do you listen to podcasts about the Bible? The opportunities for you are endless. J.C. Ryle says this, the churches which are most flourishing are churches which honor the Bible. The nations which enjoy the most moral light are nations in which the Bible is most known. The parishes in our land where there is most true religion are those in which the Bible is most studied. The godliest families are Bible-reading families. The holiest men and women are Bible-reading people. These are simple facts which cannot be denied. Ignorance of the Bible leads to error. The Sadducees were ignorant, and that was part of their problem. Secondly, let's consider this. Knowledge of the Bible leads to truth. Knowledge of the Bible leads to truth. So how does Jesus answer this fantastic, absurd situation that the Sadducees have presented to him? Well, guess what he does? He refers to the Bible. He refers to Scripture. Look at verse 26. He says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush. Now, remember that at this time, the Bible had not been divided into chapter and verse like it is today. That didn't happen actually until the 16th century. So, Jesus couldn't say, uh, have you not read in Exodus chapter 3? That's what He's referring to. So, He refers to the passage about the, book, the, uh, the bush, and that is contained for us in Exodus 3. So, if you know your Bibles, maybe you know the story here in Exodus chapter 3. Remember, the uh, Israelites are in bondage to Egypt, and God goes and calls Moses to go to Pharaoh to demand the release of the people of Israel from Egypt, and God speaks to Moses through the burning bush. And so that's what Jesus is referring to. So here, here's the passage. This is what Jesus is talking about here. Um, Moses said to God, okay, so God has already called on Moses to uh, request the freedom of His people. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is His name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So what Jesus is doing here is pointing to this passage and saying, here's the proof of the resurrection from the dead. Now, probably most of you are thinking, how in the world does this talk about the resurrection? I mean, it doesn't really seem like the most obvious text to go to, does it, to prove the resurrection from the dead? There are other texts in the Old Testament that are a little clearer about this. Uh, Job 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, after my death, 
Yet in my flesh I will see God. In my flesh, after I have died in my resurrected body, I will see God. That's what Job seems to be saying here. That's, that's, that's fairly clear. Uh, even more clear here from Ezekiel 37. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O people. So there's two Old Testament passages pretty clearly supporting the idea of a bodily resurrection. Why didn't Jesus point to these? Remember, the Sadducees don't accept these books as authoritative. They only accept the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. That's why they refer to Exodus 3. Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that they will regard this as an authoritative text, and so He refers to this passage. So, how is it that this passage is a proof text for the resurrection, for life after death? Well, remember, sometimes we read the New Testament and we kind of forget that the Old Testament was written long before the New Testament. So, when we see references in the New Testament to Old Testament texts, those are Old Testament texts that came hundreds of years before. And so, that's similar to what is even going on in Exodus chapter 3, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived before Moses. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for a long time at the time that God said to Moses that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So how is this significant? It's significant because what God is saying here is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. That's what he means. Yeah, they've passed away, they've suffered an earthly death, but they live. God wouldn't say, I'm their God, if they cease to exist, like the Sadducees believed, if they had just been annihilated. I'm still their God, and guess what, friends? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob live today. Do you know that? They are still alive, and God is still their God. And that applies to anybody that you know, beloved family members and friends who have died in the Lord. They live. They are alive, and God is still their God. And they are awaiting the future resurrection of their bodies. And so that's the point here that Jesus is making. God is their God. He couldn't be their God if they didn't exist. They still exist even though they've died. That means they live spiritually with the Lord. And so Jesus goes on here. And after making this point, He says it again. Verse 27, well, He makes this point. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That's making the point. And then there's that statement. Not just you are wrong, but he kind of steps it up a little bit. You are quite wrong. <laughs> I mean, you're really wrong. You're way off, Sadducees. You don't know what you're talking about. You're in error in your denial of the resurrection. Friends, there are certain Christian beliefs that are non-negotiable. They're not open to interpretation, and the resurrection is, is one of them. To deny that there's an afterlife, to deny that there is a resurrection, is to deny a core belief of the Christian faith. It is to border on heresy. It is to place yourself in a place where you are not worthy of being called a Christian. There are certain things not open to debate, and that's what Jesus seems to be saying. One thing you do not want Jesus to say to you is, you are quite wrong. 
on a fundamental issue like the resurrection. Now, let me acknowledge that not everything in the Bible is equally clear or even equally important. And so certainly there are debates about, for instance, um, when Jesus comes again, how is that going to relate to the millennium? You know, there's a lot of different views of that. A lot of debates about that. That's, that's not really that clear in the Scriptures, actually. What, what is the age of the earth? How old is the earth? Some people say the Bible teaches this. Some people say the Bible teaches that. The Bible is not clear on that issue either. And that's why in our denomination, we actually allow for a diversity of views for men who are ordained in the PCA. We don't require somebody to believe something specifically on these issues because we acknowledge that the Bible is not clear on them. But the most important thing to realize here, friends, is that no one's salvation hinges on your view of the age of the earth. No one's salvation hinges on what you think about the relationship between Jesus coming in the millennium. There's secondary issues. We can be gracious to one another. We can be patient with one another on those topics and in, in several others. But there are certain essentials of the gospel that we cannot toy with. The Bible is clear that there is one God, not many, one God, to the exclusion of all other claims to deity. There's one God, and He has created all things, and He's created you. You are a creation of God, and He created you in His image. He created you in dignity and honor, and yet you have turned away from that God. You have rebelled against Him in your sin. You have lived as if He doesn't exist. Your transgressions have placed you under God's condemnation. But God in His mercy and His love sent a Savior. And that Savior's name is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, a real historical figure who lived on this earth 2,000 years ago. And he fulfilled all of the obligations of God's holy law, sinless in his thoughts, words, and deeds. And he went to a cross voluntarily. He gave himself. He shed blood. He went to his own death on the cross. And when his blood was shed, sin was covered for those who place faith in him. And after his very real death, Here's where the resurrection is so important. He was raised up from the grave. He was dead, and now he's alive, and he will never die again, and will be alive forever. And now the call of the Scriptures is that all of you, and me too, repent and believe in this Jesus. Now, friends, the Bible is clear on all of that, what I just said. It's clear on all of that. You have no excuse. You can't look to the Bible and say, it's too complicated. I don't understand. There's so many differences. There's so many denominations. There's so much confusion. People don't agree on the millennium. How can I be a Christian? Don't let those secondary issues keep you away from Jesus. The essentials of the gospel are clear. Knowledge of the Bible leads to the truth of how it is to be saved. Here's our, how our confession says it. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, okay? 
Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation, the gospel basically, are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another that not only the learned but even the unlearned, the uneducated, in a due use of the ordinary means, that is, sitting under the preaching of the Word and reading the Bible yourself and praying about it, due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding to them. You may get what you need to know to be saved. It will not do to plead ignorance, friends. I didn't know. It was too confusing. It's clear. Knowledge of the Bible leads to truth. One, one other thing. Faith and the Savior of the Bible leads to resurrection life. Faith in the Savior of the Bible leads to resurrection life. Look at uh, verse 25. Um, Jesus says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. When they rise from the dead, he says, verse 25, when they rise from the dead. Important distinction here, okay? I, I've said this many times. I, I find that many Christians misunderstand this and get confused by this, but those Christians who have died today, their souls are with Jesus. Their souls are beholding the face of God in light and glory at this moment. That's the souls of deceased Christians. But the bodies of those Christians are still in the grave, the tomb. It's called the intermediate state. When Jesus here in verse 26 talks about the dead being raised, He's talking about a future day. He's talking about the last day. Day. He's talking about the end of the age, the final judgment of all mankind, the final resurrection. That's what Jesus has in mind when He talks about when they rise. No, nobody's bodies have been risen up out of the grave yet. That's the future state. We're beyond the intermediate state, and we enter into the fullness of salvation in our resurrected bodies. And that's what is being referred to here, when they rise. And when that day happens, when that day happens, friends... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's going to be the most wonderful, delightful thing that you've ever experienced. It's going to be something that's going to make all of your sorrows and pains and heartaches worth it. It's going to make them all seem small in comparison. This resurrected place is where everything sad comes untrue. It's a place of unsurpassed joy, undiminished bliss, unlimited delight. Where there is no sorrow, there is no sickness, there is no sin, there is no trouble, there is no death, there is no injustice, there is no poverty, there is no war, there is no violence. It's going to be a place where our bodies are raised up out of the grave and everything you ever long for yourself personally will be fulfilled. You'll be living in a resurrected body, there's going to be no more arthritis. No more backaches, no more sinus headaches, no more insecurities about the way you look, no more body shame, no more depression, no more bipolar disorder. All these things will be purged. All these things will be gone. That's the resurrected life that we look forward to as Christians. But friends, there's only one way to know that you're going to go there, and that's if you trust Jesus. You have to believe upon His name. Now, as wonderful as that place is going to be, there is a significant difference that Jesus mentions here in verse 25. Apparently, in this 
age, this future age, there will be no earthly marriage. Verse 25, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. No more marriage. And so this then is Jesus' answer to the Sadducees' question, because the Sadducees were assuming that marriage would continue in the next age in the same way as it is in this age. And so if people get married in a particular way here on earth, certainly that's going to continue in heaven. And so Jesus just demolishes the whole thing by saying, there isn't even going to be marriage in heaven. So your question, your, your premise is faulty, Sadducees. It doesn't go anywhere. Now, I, I know to some people that might sound a little disappointing. You know, I love my husband. I love my wife. I, I don't want marriage to end. But here's why. The reason why I think marriage will not be present in heaven is because when we get to this final resurrected state, the one perfect marriage between Jesus and His bride, between Jesus and the church, that's you and me, will be the new eternal reality. Earthly marriages point to a greater marriage, the marriage of Jesus to His church. Church is called the bride of Jesus, and He is coming to get His bride. And while so many of us long in our lives for the perfect marriage, every Christian will receive it. The perfect marriage is in your future Christian. Randy Alcorn says this, earthly marriage is a shadow, a copy, an echo of the true and ultimate marriage. Once that ultimate marriage begins at the Lamb's wedding feast, all the human marriages that pointed to it will have served their noble purpose and will be assimilated into the one great marriage they foreshadowed. So are you going to be there in the resurrected life with Jesus as your bride? Is that your future? Do you have assurance that you'll be there? How should that affect everything we do in this life? Every disappointment, every challenge, every setback that we face can be processed through the promise of this future resurrected life that is given to all who trust in Jesus. Friends, that's it. You've got to give yourself to Jesus. You have to believe on His name. You have to bow your knee to Him. You have to take Him as your Savior and your Lord and what First Peter says is true, that He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Friends, all you need to know, all you need to know about the biggest questions in life is it's right here. All you need to know about how to know your sins are forgiven, about how to know that God is for you, about how to live a life that is pleasing for Him. It is all here, and God is an effective communicator, and you can understand what He says. Let us not be found ignorant of the words of eternal life. God, thank You so much that You have spoken to us, that You have not remained hidden, that You have revealed Yourself to us in the pages of Your Word, and that over the centuries You've preserved Your Word in its purity and in its excellence. And so, God, I pray, make us lovers of Your Word, devoted to Your Word. Make us people of Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for all that Your Word tells us about Jesus and His life and death and resurrection for us. 
And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.